Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul today and we have got a load of information to get through today so we're going to start straight away with the Big Brother Watch judgment which came out on the 25th of May this year. The Grand Chamber of the European Court has ruled that the UK's mass interception programmes unlawfully breached citizens' rights to privacy and freedom of expression. The judgment follows a 2018 ruling in the European Court of Human Rights that held that the interception of programmes breached the European Convention on Human Rights as they lacked adequate safeguards. The judgment in 2021 goes even further, finding definitively that the UK's bulk interception practices were unlawful. The Grand Chamber expressed a need for end-to-end safeguards throughout surveillance practices. The result of the judgment is that the bulk of surveillance in the UK and across Europe will require prior independent or judicial authorization that checks for adequate end-to-end safeguards. During the trial, the UK government admitted that the purpose of bulk surveillance is not to search for communications of identified targets, but to gather mass data and decide who should be targeted. The campaign groups Big Brother Watch, Open Rights and English Pen argued that the mass interception is unlawful as it cannot be considered necessary or proportionate in a democratic society as it treats everyone as under suspicion. The majority opinion focused on the safeguards that could be placed on bulk interception, from which one could infer that this new practice of surveying all to find targets could be here to stay. It was only the dissent of Judge Pinto the Albuquerque, that seemed to recognise that admitting non-targeted bulk interception would be a fundamental change in how we view crime prevention and investigation, from targeting a suspect to treating everyone as suspects. So I think this dissent raises quite an interesting question around whether there's any legal framework really capable of protecting citizens' privacy rights from this new way of information gathering in criminal investigations. Well, first of all, I think it's remarkable that the government has admitted its practices work in this fashion. Um, A decade ago, two decades ago, the British government would never have admitted that its bulk interception of data was a phishing exercise designed to identify possible targets for investigation rather than being specifically targeted at individuals. Um, when claims of that sort were made uh, about anti-terrorism legislation in the 2000s, the government consistently held the line that the use of this sort of uh, data and surveillance was always precisely targeted. Um, so uh, it, it absolutely vindicates uh, Edward Snowden and the uh, information that, that he leaked as a whistleblower on these sorts of practices. Um, It shows uh, that he was certainly uh, correct um, about uh, the most significant practices. Um, But it also shows, I think, something quite worrying about the British government in that it clearly feels its position is untouchable. It's quite happy to openly admit, yeah, we go fishing through everybody's data uh, just to see if uh, there's anyone that needs to be investigated. Um, as I say, a decade ago, they wouldn't have admitted that, but now they are. And uh, they're admitting it because, as far as I can see, they don't think there's anything that we can do about it. Um, 
So you ask, is there a framework by which individuals rights could be protected um you can always design a framework right it's always possible to come up with some elaborate scheme of oversight that either actually um, provides a degree of protection or provides uh, the appearance of a degree of protection so you can come up with something that works in practice or something that works in theory but ultimately this is all a matter of politics and it's to do with whether the government has any interest in complying with the judgment of the European Court of Human Rights that is going to be inconvenient for its position uh, and its practices on uh, criminal investigation and so on and so forth. And I don't think there's any sign this government is going to do a a thing uh, in response to the judgment. Um, We still don't have prisoners voting. Um, and after the European Court of Human Rights ruled against uh, the British government years ago, and they made some tiny concession to it just to um, make it possible to throw the case back to court for another decade. Um, but no, no widespread acknowledgement um, of that judgment or its implications. And we'll see the same with this, I'm afraid. Um, we've reached we reached the limits of what the law is capable of doing when you come up against a government that has no interest in adhering to it and and i think ultimately as with prisoners rights uh this is something that the government doesn't care about because it doesn't think it the the, the public cares either i mean if you look at the popular response to the edward snowden uh, revelations the same with the cambridge analytica revelations nothing changed uh the but, you know, the public hardly rose up in anger. Um, and I think that it's too easy for this government to play the line of if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. Um, I think the popular attitude towards uh, this type of activity by GCHQ is the is the sort of complacent belief that, well, they're not going to be interested in me, uh, which isn't which isn't the point at all. But. The political question here, and I'm afraid it is, as I say, an entirely political one, um, in terms of whether the government will respond to this, is simply, are there enough libertarians on the conservative backbenches willing to cause enough trouble for the prime minister in parliament that he's forced into a position of making some concessions? Um but that would also rely on the uh, opposition parties uniting to um, uniting with any libertarians on the conservative backbenches to oppose the status quo. Um, and I'm not sure anybody has a clue what the Labour Party's position on mass surveillance is. Um, I'm not sure anybody has a clue what the Labour Party's position on most things is at the moment. But I certainly haven't heard anything from Keir Starmer on uh, bulk data interception and policies regarding that. So um, that's the space to watch. Conservative backbenches, I'm afraid. Um, uh, As I say, the law's run out of options here. Once you get to Strasbourg, that's as far as you can go. It is worth noting that there's currently an appeal against a High Court ruling in 2019 against the Investigatory Powers Act 2016 that Liberty the privacy group is running. Um, So that may be a a local judgment that might have some impact in this area. 
So until we have an appeal on that, um, we can't really say much more about it. But of course, we will keep you posted on Newscast. Moving on then to Google and its announcement that it is going to change its algorithm to minimize the impact of slander websites. Slander websites, something new that I only came across um, when I heard that they had done this. These are websites that profit on soliciting unverified claims about cheaters, sexual predators, fraudsters, and scammers for people who want to attack their enemies. Anonymous posts appear high in Google search results for the names of victims, and then the websites charge the victims, sometimes thousands of dollars, to take these posts down. These lurid and very lucrative businesses have been devastating for victims who don't really have any recourse as the posts are anonymous and the website hosts are very difficult to trace. Google has announced its plans to change its search algorithm to prevent these websites from appearing in the lists of results when someone searches for a person's name. And this is quite an interesting development for Google, who's historically been very reluctant to get any human judgment involved in its search engine. Google's founders saw its algorithm as an unbiased reflection of the internet itself, and the worthiness of a website would be evaluated by how many other sites link to it, as well as the quality of those sites and how many sites link to them. In recent years, however, it's become apparent to the company that certain sites are gaming this algorithm to appear higher than they deserve. And this is the reason that Google's given for why it's making these changes to combat these sites. It's also created a new concept known as the known victims list. This is a list that people can report to um, when they've been attacked on these sites. And Google will then work to remove these posts and automatically suppress similar content attached to the same name on other websites. The algorithm update is the latest manifestation of Google's policies on removing items from search results that captures this company's evolution in this area and shows the impact potentially of the 2014 European Court judgment of the right to be forgotten and Google understanding that actually it needs to take a slightly more active role in its the information that its services host. Uh, it's also an example of self-correction because Google made this decision completely unilaterally. And so it's yeah, a great example that Paul loves of the market correcting itself. Well, as you say, um, you know, we could take a particular philosophical, political philosophical perspective on this to do with the marketplace. And we could trace quite an interesting timeline of development in Google's thinking here, because to begin with, Google says there's nothing wrong with our algorithm. Indeed, it is perfect because it perfectly reflects the Internet as it is, an unregulated marketplace of ideas. Um, uh, And then time goes by and it becomes apparent that it is entirely possible to game this particular marketplace, as it is, of course, in just about any marketplace. And Google realizes there has to be a degree of regulation. Um, of the marketplace and takes it upon itself as a massive private concern to uh, engage in that regulation comes up with a system now of course what they will say is well this is the marketplace working perfectly isn't it you've got a company uh, innovating creating changes to its algorithm in response to a problem and in response to its users concerns as users of course being the consumers here um innovating and solving the problems. So um, yay for uh, the marketplace, yay for private uh, 
company's innovation and uh, problem solved, right? Yes, and let's let's continue the theme uh, of um, this radical disconnect between uh, the actuality of the marketplace and the perception of the marketplace by talking about GB News. So GB News, as we know, is the uh, flagship uh, uh, TV news channel uh, brought about by uh, Andrew Neil that aims to uh, replicate the style of, of Fox News in America. Uh, and its agenda is a, a sort of uncompromising, uh, unapologetic attack on the perception of woke uh, cancel culture uh, and the social justice movement. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, for uh, GB News, um, the campaign uh, group uh, Stop Funding Hate has achieved considerable success uh, in its campaign against uh, GB News, in its campaign to encourage advertisers to make sure they're not associated with GB News and don't. Uh, uh, advertise on it and um, this campaign has been so successful that uh, very strangely the culture secretary found it necessary to intervene uh, on poor old Andrew Neil's behalf uh, by making a plea uh, to say that uh, this uh, this intervention uh, is uh, is unjust uh, in fact uh, he he wrote uh, in the Telegraph, uh, I will not let a small vocal minority undermine our freedom of speech. Um, and uh, he felt that uh, uh, Stop Funding Hate were piling the pressure on advertisers to boycott um, Andrew Neil's um, GB News uh, and that this was uh, a bad thing. Um, we shouldn't be blocking people from the conversation simply because we disagree with them. Um uh, sadly, what uh, uh, the culture secretary fails to recognise is, of course, that in a market economy such as this, uh, advertisers can do exactly what they want with their property rights. Uh, if they don't wish to be associated with a particular product, uh, it's entirely up to them to um, to uh, disassociate themselves as much as they would like to. It has absolutely nothing to do with freedom of speech. No one is stopping Andrew Neil from spouting his anti-woke rhetoric um, by encouraging advertisers uh, to boycott GB News. Uh, if advertisers want to exercise their rights not to be associated with that product, they're entirely um, uh, they're entirely they're entirely entitled to do so. Paul is absolutely right on this. Um, there is no firmer supporter of the free market uh, than Andrew Neil, uh, who knows this all very, very well. Um, and uh, advertisers are free to do what they want, as are consumers, of course. And those who are uh, going on social media and telling companies that they will not buy their products if they uh, advertise on GB News are those companies' consumers. Consumers, ultimately, in the marketplace are supposed to be king, according to market theory. And consumers vote with their feet. And when consumers vote with their feet, they are not you know, a, 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 a vocal minority trampling on the rights of others, as they are being characterized as. Uh, they are the consumers around whom the marketplace is built. 
So they do get to make this decision. And of course, there are times when consumers um, make decisions uh, that other consumers don't like. Right? Uh, it may well be that, you know, uh, you could think back, it's a fantastic example. You could think back to um, the, oh, I, I can't even remember which decade it was in, sometime late ish, mid to late 20th century, right? Coca Cola changed its formula because of market research. They got focus groups and the market research indicated that people preferred a different taste to Coca-Cola, one that actually was closer to the taste of Pepsi, Coca-Cola's great rivals. So they changed, Coca-Cola changed their recipe and the marketplace erupted. Everybody went mad, or rather enough people went mad that, that they uh, decided that ultimately they had to revert. Why? Because, yeah, there may be there was a, a, a group of people who, who wanted to change, but there was a larger group of people who didn't. That's the marketplace working, right? So the, if GB News uh, wants to survive uh, the attempts of uh, the Stop Funding Hate Campaign group to persuade companies to disassociate itself, then what it needs is for its most vocal supporters and its most powerful supporters to get out there and tell those companies, no, we will buy your product, keep advertising, keep advertising. But how many of the people who really want to see GB News succeed are willing to get out there and say, yes, we will continue to buy your products. We will buy your products in such enormous volume that you must keep advertising on the platform. Of course, if these people are really committed to buying the products and keeping the companies afloat, the companies won't need to advertise um, because they'll have a massive consumer base. So, uh, yeah, none, none of this makes any sense. Paul is absolutely right. It's nothing to do with free speech. It's to do with the marketplace uh, working exactly as the folks, the good folks at GB News uh, tell us the marketplace should work. Sticking with uh, right-leaning press coming into financial difficulties, The Times and Rupert Murdoch are seeking to get a change in the law that would allow the Sunday Times and the Times editorial team to be part of News Corp. Um, at the moment, there is it's written into law that this editorial team needs to be free and independent. Rupert Murdoch is claiming that the Sunday Times and the Times are in such financial difficulty that they will combust uh, pretty soon if they are not able to come under the same umbrella. And he promises that this will not impact on the editorial team's ability to provide independent news and criticism. Um, it's just merely a financial decision for the sake of the company. Uh, what do we think of this? Um, this... Uh... Murdoch is just saying nothing to see here, right? Uh, that uh, this is purely financial and the fact that it would give me, as Rupert Murdoch, in theory, complete editorial control over the content of two of the biggest newspapers in the United Kingdom um, uh, is, is, is merely incidental and not something that I would ever, ever take advantage of for my own political purposes. Nothing to say, see here whatsoever. Um, so don't worry about it. Do we think it's likely to pass? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Of course it is. Um, government will do anything. The, the, prob the problem that we have is that any resistance that this government might have um, uh, to this kind of measure, uh, I think weakens by the day as its own incompetence comes to the fore. 
uh, it needs, uh, it continues to need uh, the Murdoch press to support it in order to stay in power. So, you know, this is, this strikes me as opportunism by Rupert, Rupert Murdoch. He sees this as a, as an opportunity to get what he's always wanted ever since he bought the Times in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. Was it 81? I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when Harold Evans was um, uh, ousted from the uh, Times in the uh, circumstances that he was, um, part of the reason was the, the uh, threat that he perceived to editorial freedom. Um, and uh, th this would just be the nail in the coffin uh, of that. And the timings, I mean, it's, it's interesting, this announcement in light of the Daniel Morgan investigation, which has just come out yeah. in the same week. And so perhaps it's a good time to, to move on to that. For listeners who aren't aware of this, this is the report on uh, the death of Daniel, murder of Daniel Morgan in 1987, which a report has found had significant and unlawful interactions between the media and the police. Morgan was supposed to be working on a story that exposed police corruption before his murder. Five police investigations in the past 34 years have failed to find the culprit. In the 1,200-page reports, evidence was found that News UK employees had deliberately interfered with the murder case in an attempt to discredit one of the early investigations. It also found that one early suspect had been paying News UK, a News UK reporter for several years, while that journalist sought to interfere with the investigation. The hacked off campaign for free and accountable press has been using this report as a call for Leveson part two. And of course we have Hackworth board member Paul Wagg with us to give us more information. Yes, so the uh, the Daniel Morgan uh, murder inquiry uh, is uh, very complicated, but of course ostensibly the connection between uh, a murder inquiry and uh, the press and press freedom isn't entirely clear. Um, what's this got to do with uh, media law? Uh, sadly, it has a lot to do with media law um, and more than newspapers are prepared to admit. The essential element of this is about uh, the lack of safeguards that we have in place uh, in this country um, to ensure that the uh, uh, awful hacking uh, stories that we heard about from the early 2000s uh, don't happen again. Um, now, uh, Leveson Part 2, for those that aren't aware, was meant to be a more thorough investigation into the relationships between the press, the police and the government and the safeguards that effectively would ensure uh, those key branches of the state uh, were uh, suitably uh, independent of each other uh, and also that they were checking on each other. Um, the tragic position we find ourselves in, though, is that we have very little by way of safeguard uh, to ensure that corruption in the police, the press and the government, where that corruption overlaps, uh, doesn't go unnoticed. Well, sadly, it can go unnoticed. And this is what the Daniel Morgan uh, independent panel findings demonstrate. Now, it is a long report, but just to sort of illustrate um, the, the problem, remember a few weeks back, uh, you couldn't move 
for stories about Martin Bashir and how Martin Bashir's uh, treatment of Diana, Princess of Wales, demonstrated uh, such a level of corruption in the BBC uh, that something needed to be done. That was essentially the message coming from the press. Well, the findings of the uh, Daniel Morgan Independent panel go much further and are more, much more shocking than anything that Martin Bashir may have done. Um, specifically, the report says that the links between personnel at the highest levels of the Metropolitan Police and people working for News UK li linked to criminality uh, associated with murder of Daniel Morgan are of serious and legitimate concern. That is the message uh, that comes out of that report. Daniel Morgan was working, uh, in fact, had set up an organisation called Southern Investigations. And it's the, behavior, it's the subsequent behaviour of Southern Investigations that is of key concern uh, to media law reformers because of the connections that are said to exist between Southern Investigations and the corruption in uh, News of the World relating to phone hacking. Um, and, and just to sort of be clear, phone hacking uh, is not something that simply involves uh, celebrities. It's not simply uh, journalists having a bit of fun, listening into uh, voicemail messages about people having affairs. Actually, the type of behaviours that newspapers have been involved in are shocking. And one of the most shocking stories in the report actually concerns one of my fellow board members, uh, Jackie Hames, who was uh, a police officer uh, known to the public for her appearances on Crime Watch. Her husband at that time was a lead investigator uh, for uh, one of the many murder investigations trying to uncover the truth about who killed Daniel Morgan. Imagine the horror of finding men in your garden freely wandering around. Those men were, were journalists. Uh, they were keeping her under active surveillance. Um, the line that Rebecca uh, Brooks, then Rebecca Wade, uh, gave was that this uh, investigation of Jackie Haynes was legitimate uh, because um, they believed she was having an affair with her husband, Dave Cook. This, this sort of attitude that, that newspapers are themselves quasi-police officers who can investigate us, who can watch us, who can stand in our garden um, whenever they feel like it, is deeply, deeply troubling. And we're too quick to assume that this type of thing can't happen to us. Mm. It can. It does. That's a nice um, point to just mention that actually Simon, so Simon Hughes, the ex-MP, the Lib Dems, um, has accepted a substantial damages settlement against newsgroup newspapers over phone hacking. Um, in 2006, some journalists gathered information about Sir Hughes' sexuality through private telephone calls and published this information in a front page expose uh, so Hughes told the court that he felt the Sun would publish the story anyway, and so he had no choice but to cooperate. And it's uh, yeah another example of that very intrusive level of surveillance that newspapers were just 
continuously practicing. Before the end of this newscast, I want to briefly mention Maya Forstater, who is the woman who lost her job after saying that people cannot change their biological sex. And she, who's just won an appeal in the upper employment tribunal. I think this is a discussion that deserves fuller analysis on another media law podcast another day, but it's worth mentioning briefly now. Just by way of background for listeners, Forsater didn't have her contract renewed at her uh, place of work, which is a think tank for the Centre of Global Development, after posting a series of tweets that questioned government plans, which never actually came into fruition, that would let people declare their own gender. She claimed she was discriminated against because of her beliefs, which include that sex is immutable and not to be conflated with gender identity. Just for clarity, that is the belief, not what she tweeted. The first tribunal found that Forsater's views were not worthy of respect in a democratic society, but the Upper Employment Tribunal found that Forsater's belief that biological sex is real and immutable met the legal test for a genuine philosophical position that is protected under the UK's Equality Act. The test for such protection was whether her belief was one, touch on an important part of human life, two, would be accepted by others, and three, could not be shown to be a direct attempt to harm others. The appeal panel found that while her words would be offensive to some, they were not violent or oppressive. There's been a lot of confusion about what this judgment means online, especially with regard to free speech. And so I thought maybe it's worth giving a bit of clarity on on how this tribunal focuses specifically on the opinion that she holds and that interaction between opinion and free speech. Um, So perhaps one of you could shed some light on that. Well, the, the the connection to free speech is rather complicated because it's it's uh, the decision itself, although it's uh, represented as a sort of victory for free speech, it's actually to do with a specific legislative provision uh, in the uh, Equalities Act uh, relating to the protection of philosophical beliefs. So the question for the court really was whether the non-renewal of Maya Forstatter's uh, contract uh, amounted to uh, a breach of, of this uh, uh, provision. Um, so the, the sort of free speech implications of it are there, of course, but they're rather sort of muted uh, in the background. It is something, though, that we, we will be returning to on a future podcast um, because we think this is an issue that needs to be uh, carefully considered and analysed. Finally, we've just heard on the morning of recording this newscast that Associated News have been granted leave to appeal the summary judgment against them in the Duchess of Sussex privacy and copyrights claim. There's not much information available right now, so we can't give you a detailed analysis of what exactly is being appealed and on what grounds, but we will, of course, follow this case, um, follow this appeal closely, and we will keep you posted on social media and with future newscasts. So I think that's everything that we wanted to discuss today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for joining me. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And we will see you again soon. Thank you very much.